Let's pray together. Father, we praise your name together today. We praise you, Lord, for who you are. We praise you for your perfect holiness, for your infinite mercy, for your matchless grace. And Lord, we pray that today and every day that our mind and our hearts would be set upon who you are and not only what you do for us. Lord, we confess that we are sinful people who are undeserving of your love. We do not worship you in the way that we should. We do not think of you in the way that we should. And yet, Lord, you freely forgive us in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And Lord, today, we ask that you would be with us. We pray especially for little Weston. We pray for his family, Lord, as he is dealing with the effects of being bitten by a snake this morning. Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to his little body. Lord, we pray for all of us, for our hearts, as we come to your word together. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that we would be changed, that we would hear and obey what you have for us. Lord, we pray today that your word would be our life. And we pray this in Christ's name together today. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We'll be beginning in verse 4 today. Last week we began our study through the Ten Commandments by examining the first, which commands that Israel have no other gods besides the one true God. But as a part of our time together in God's word, we also discussed at length how the Ten Commandments are God's moral law and as such are still binding upon us even under the covenant of grace in Christ. As Peter Martyr said, Israel's civil laws are no longer valid among other nations, however religious they may be and have received Christ, but morals are eternal and cannot be abolished, therefore the just and the right contained therein are perpetual. And so it's with that in mind today that we examine the second of the Ten Commandments. And on the surface, there, there seems to be a substantial amount of overlap between the first commandment and the second commandment. Both of them forbid idolatry. They both forbid idolatry. But what we will find today is that while the first commandment gives us particular instruction about whom we worship, the second gives us guidance about how we worship. And in an era with an increasing attitude of anything is acceptable toward how many people worship the Lord... This commandment and what it necessarily implies are particularly meaningful and helpful to the church. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 20 
and we'll read all three verses, verse 4 through 6. And the first thing we'll discuss is the way we worship. The way we worship. If you got a bulletin or one of our sermon listening guides when you came in, you'll see that we have two points this morning, and that's our first one, the way we worship. So let's read together Exodus chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In Exodus chapter 19, when Israel came to the mountain from which the Lord is speaking to them now, if you weren't with us last week and you haven't listened back to last week's sermon, you may have missed that. When Israel received the Ten Commandments for the first time, It wasn't that the Lord spoke to Moses privately and he came down with tablets and that was when Israel found out about them. No, Israel as a whole is standing outside the perimeter of this mountain and the Lord's presence has come down upon it in a very visible way and they all hear the voice of the Lord giving them these commandments. And so when Israel first came to the mountain, Moses went up to the top of the mountain to meet the Lord. And the Lord told Israel through Moses that he was going to make them a holy nation. A holy nation. The purpose of this is to make Israel more like God himself. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, we find this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be Holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so the Lord's purpose behind this holiness of Israel is to make them like himself. This idea of holiness is rooted in being different, being set apart. And so when we think about the holiness of God, it is important for us to remember that God is different from us in every conceivable way. Even in the things, even in the ways that we are like God, because he made us in his image, there are aspects of us that are like him, things like love and kindness and mercy. Even in those things that we have been made in God's image, there is still a differentiation there because God's characteristics are perfect and untainted by sin. So when we say that God is love, that means something different than when we say we love one another because our love is tainted by our own sinfulness. God's love is not. For example, God never confuses actual love with the world's skewed definition of love, which is primarily based upon people's feelings and not upon truth. We are in the midst of a month that is dedicated to people who walk and parade in the streets and chanting, love is love. But they don't know what love is because love without truth 
is not love. God's love does not suffer from that same sort of moral confusion in the same way that our love does. And so in a similar way, Israel is to be different from the world around them so that they would stand as a beacon to the world, highlighting their error in worshiping false gods. The whole idea is that Israel would stand in the midst of all of these pagan nations and the ways that they worship are different and the God that they worship is different. And the people would say, there's something different about them. And it's God's judgment against them violating the first commandment of his moral law. And one of the hallmarks of this worship of false gods is that it almost universally consisted of some sort of visible representation of these so-called gods. Whether it's through an idol that they make, whether it's out of wood or stone or metal, whether it's through paintings that they have. All of these things typically would serve as a stand-in for this false god. And you were to worship this object, this depiction, as though it were the actual god. Sometimes the worship was directed at the idol itself, but it was more often that the idol was a representation of their false god. This is why the second commandment seems to forbid something that was already forbidden in the first, the worship of idols. This is why. Because at first glance, it's, it almost seems like the Lord is repeating himself. You shall have no other gods before me. And just in case you're unclear, don't make any other false gods. But the issue here is, is God's focus on their actual worship practices. You see, with Israel intended to be holy as God is holy, this would include the way that they worship. Not just the God that they worship, but the way that they worship this God. They were to worship differently than the other pagan nations all around them, standing as a representation of Yahweh's different nature compared to his creation. And so when the Lord in the second commandment forbids the creation of idols... He's not just forbidding idolatry. He's saying, you're not supposed to worship me the way that these other pagan nations worship me. We find further evidence of this in Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 4, which says, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And then in verse 4 it says this, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So the Lord tells them as they are going into the promised land, not just to dispossess the people, but to go to all of their places of worship and utterly destroy them. Chop down the idols, burn the ashram poles, destroy their altars, tear all of it apart because they are not to worship the Lord utilizing any of these pagan practices. 
And so the primary focus of that differentiation on display is that Israel will not create these visible depictions of any so-called gods, including, including the one true God or any creature for the purposes of worship. Yahweh has not ever been seen by Israel or by anyone else for that matter. He does not have a body. He is not a physical being. He is a spiritual being. How can you make a physical representation of a spiritual being? How can they make a, represent a visible representation of someone that they have never seen? And so the Lord says, make no idols, whether of me or anyone else, because they have seen his works. They are hearing him speak these words, but no human has laid eyes upon the Lord. And any idol that is made in the image of a created being is literally placing the creature above the creator. Israel falls into this trap a little later in the book of Exodus. Moses goes up onto the mountain and the Lord is giving him the law. And while Moses is gone, the people get restless and they say, Moses has been gone a really long time. We don't know if he's ever coming back. Aaron, make us a God. Now remember, they hear the Lord say this. And what do they do? They take all their gold and they make a calf. They make a created being into an idol. And then they say, this is your God. These are your gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It doesn't take long for them to fall into this trap. And Moses reinforces this idea of not placing the creature above the creator in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, where he says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. The likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So the Lord here in Deuteronomy 4, in speaking to Moses... He says, when you take these creatures, these creations, and he's very, he, he's, very, like, you know, he's very specific. No birds, no land animals, no creatures that crawl on the ground, no, the sun, the moon, the st none of it. And he says, when you do that, you are worshiping something that God created for the benefit of all of creation. You are taking a tool and elevating it to the status of a God, and in so doing, forsaking the actual God, the one who actually created all of these things. This is why the church has historically held that the second commandment gives us grounding in the moral law that how we worship the Lord matters. And not only matters, but is a perpetual moral command that we are obligated to obey. The second commandment is the Lord saying to us, 
you will only worship me in the ways that I tell you. Don't figure out your own ways to do it. Worship me the way that I say. And you might say, well, this only prohibits creating images. And so, so you might say, well, we could just say that as long as we aren't creating images for worship, then we're in compliance with the commandment. But that would be coming up short. Consider what we find in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So here we have Aaron's sons who are priests, and they are in the temple conducting rites of worship, and they get a bright idea, hey, I know the Lord says we're supposed to use this kind of fire and this kind of incense and do it this way, but what if we did something different? What if we, what if we tried something fresh and new? Let's spice it up a little. The people will really enjoy it. And so they do something outside of what the Lord has commanded them, and they are immediately consumed by fire and killed. Immediately. And it's such a horrific thing that they have done that the Lord literally tells Aaron through Moses, don't mourn your sons. That's how big of a deal this was. Don't mourn your dead sons because their death is on their own head. There was no particular command that prohibited Aaron's sons from offering this fire. There was nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the law, that the Lord said, don't do this kind of fire and this kind of incense. However, there were particular commands about what types of fire and what types of incense they were to use. In offering this unauthorized fire, the word there literally means strange, outside of the norm, they were violating the Lord's commands as to how he was to be worshipped. Do you, understand, you see that? The Lord never said, don't offer this kind of fire. But when they did offer that kind of fire, he killed them for it. Because he had told them what kind of fire they were to offer. Ultimately, to understand and obey the second commandment rightly... We need to position ourselves under the umbrella of something known as the regulative principle of worship. This means that we are to worship the Lord only in the ways that he has given to us in his word. For Israel, these things were explicitly spelled out for them within the law. With incredible levels of attention paid to what kind of animals were to be sacrificed, at what times and for what purposes, and in what ways. For example, the passage from Deuteronomy 12 that I read earlier, which concludes with, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, goes on to say this in the next verse and following. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go 
And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So that Deuteronomy 12 passage begins with, don't worship God like that, and then concludes with, do worship God like this. And if you don't worship him like that, and you do worship him like this, you will be blessed. You and your family will rejoice in the Lord because you have followed his commands. So that's for Israel. They have these laws spelled out for them that dictate how they are to worship. For the New Testament church, who are no longer under their religious ceremonial laws, this means that we are to only do things in worship that we find enumerated for us in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. We are to do the things that we see the early church doing. So we read Scripture we teach, we sing, we pray, we take the Lord's Supper, we baptize, all things that we find the early church doing. We worship together as a whole body. We don't send children off to a nursery because that's what they did in the early church. They all worship together. Further, we gather on Sundays because that is when the early church gathered together. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks when we get to the fourth commandment. And the flip side of that is that we don't do things in our gathering that we don't find for us in God's word. So, things like dramas, those are fine, but they're not for Sunday morning. We do not worship the Lord our God in that way because we don't see that happening in the New Testament. You see what I'm trying to say here? And here's, here's the reason why. Because when we worship the Lord in a way of our own choosing, it is not the Lord that we are worshiping. If we decide, I can worship God however I choose, that's not the Lord. That is a false God that we have created for ourselves. We have decided, I can determine who God is, and I can worship him however I want. Nowhere in scripture will you find that idea in anyone who is a regenerated believer. It doesn't exist. We must not seek to serve the God we want, but to serve the God who is. The second reason why we only do the things that we find in the scriptures is because our worship is a picture of Christ, and we must be mindful of how we image him to the world. If you read in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is telling the Corinthian church that when they come together and worship, all things should be done decently and in order. There are certain segments of people who call themselves Christians. Some of them are, some of them aren't, depending on their doctrine and their theology. But their gatherings are extraordinarily chaotic. 
They are screeching at one another in these ridiculous utterances. They're jumping all over the place. They're throwing shoes around. They're doing all kind of absurd nonsense. And do you know what that looks like to the world? It looks like we serve a God of absurd nonsense. The image they are presenting to the world of Jesus Christ is an image of chaos and absurdity. And the God that we serve is not a God of chaos and absurdity. We should rightly shun any practices that make us look more like the culture around us and less like the Lord. That is the basic message of the second commandment. But the second commandment doesn't stop with just the command. We also go on in the back half of verse 5 and verse 6, and we find something that we're going to talk about this morning that our second point will be entitled, The Sins of Our Fathers. The Sins of Our Fathers. I'm going to read these verses again, just so that they're fresh in our mind. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep me and keep my commandments, who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment also gives us a reason for the Lord's prohibition, as well as a promise of either punishment or blessing, depending on obedience. So the first thing we see in these, this segment is that the Lord is a jealous God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I'm going to say it right off the bat, you need to resist the temptation to understand that phrase in a human context, where jealousy almost exclusively is a negative thing that is tied to our own insecurities and expresses itself in our emotions. When we talk about a person being jealous, it usually means they are insecure in whatever relationship it's tied to, and their jealousy comes out in ways that are driven by their emotions. Whether it's fear, whether it's anger, whatever it may be, that jealousy comes out in ways that are sinful. When we speak of the Lord being jealous, it's not that. Remember what I said before when I talked about the Lord, us being made in God's image, but even in those things, he is still different from us? It's the same kind of thing. We need to understand this in the context of a perfect, holy God who is perfectly committed to his people. And when his people decide to worship the Lord in a way that is in accordance with their own desires rather than his perfect commands, it is like a husband whose wife has gone off after another man. The Lord is perfectly, completely, eternally committed to his people. And when his people say, thanks, but no thanks, I'm going to chase after this over here. The Lord over and over and over again speaks of his relationship with Israel in the sense of an adulterous wife. In fact, there is an entire book that is in the Old Testament where the Lord has a prophet go and marry a prostitute who is going to repeatedly run back off into prostitution 
as a literal object lesson for him to say, Hosea the prophet is like me and Israel is like his prostitute wife. The Lord is saying here, when he says he is a jealous God, he is saying, I am like a husband who has been wronged by his wife when you worship me in the way you want to worship me rather than in the way that I have commanded. The Lord's jealousy is justified in a way that ours is typically not. And in that jealousy, we find his response to false worship. We are told that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice, first of all, that those who violate the second commandment, they aren't seen as misguided. They're not seen as innovative. They're not seen as culturally relevant. No, the Lord says they hate me. They hate me. We need to understand that to violate God's commands about how he is to be worshipped is to hate God. But what does it mean when God says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children? Does God punish our children for our sin? Well, in places like Ezekiel 18.20, we find the answer to that particular question. Ezekiel says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So clearly, what the Lord means when he's speaking of the second commandment is not, if you violate the commandment, your children are going to go to hell. I'm going to send them to hell for your sin. That's not what he's saying. Because the wickedness of the wicked is upon themselves. So what does it mean? I think if we consider the narrative of the people of Israel and the effects of their many instances of veering off into idolatry and false worship, the answer is readily apparent. Over the last several months, our adult Sunday school class has gone through 1 and 2 Samuel and now in 1 Kings and going to continue on in 2 Kings. And one of the things that you see over and over and over again the kings of Israel and Judah lead the people into idolatry. They start doing the things that they were told not to do in Deuteronomy 12. They're worshiping the Lord in the high places. They're building Asherah poles. They're doing those specific things. And as a result, future generations get further and further and further from the Lord. Usually, the children of idolaters don't somehow turn it around of their own accord. That's usually not how it works. We typically follow in the footsteps of our parents. Children model what they see in front of them. And so when the Lord says that he visits the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, what he is reminding us is that our sin never affects only us. There is no such thing as a personal sin that doesn't impact anybody else. It doesn't exist. 
your sins impact other people. And if you are a parent, your sins have a particularly severe impact on your children. And the sin of false worship and idolatry has an even more harmful effect on our children and their children. Because it teaches them that these things are acceptable and even good, and they stray even further than we ever do. Consider those who have given lip service to the things of the Lord, but they don't live their lives in ways that align with the truth of God's word. Their children usually fade away from the church once they reach adulthood, and their children often never know the church at all as a part of their lives. I can't tell you how many older believers who have come to me and talked about the regrets that they have, that they did not live out their faith in the way that they should have, because now their children and their grandchildren have no faith at all, because what they saw was hypocrisy. They saw someone who said, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. And nothing else in their life actually measured up to that. And as a result, they said, well, I can live the way they lived without having to get up early on Sunday morning. I can live the way that they live without having to pretend like I'm a good moral person. I don't have to fake it. I can just do it. That's what it means when the Lord says he's going to visit the iniquity of false worship on ensuing generations. He's saying, if you don't worship me rightly, your kids won't. Your grandkids definitely won't. And if those generations continue the pattern of unrepentant sin, then they will face condemnation. But conversely, for those who love God, and those who keep his commandments, his steadfast love remains upon them and their children. And he says to the thousandth generation. Not in a salvific way. This is not a, a guarantee that if you worship the Lord in the right way, that your kids are going to become Christians and they're going to worship him in the right way too. But it is a special and unique blessing for children to grow up hearing the word of God and seeing it lived out in their parents' lives. It's a special blessing for them. If you are one of the lucky ones who grew up in a home where both of your parents were devoted Christians who truly loved the Lord, you cannot remember a time in your life where you did not hear God's word. You understand what this is talking about. If you're one of the ones who didn't, you also understand what this is talking about. You see the way that this blessing versus curse takes place in the lives of children. You see, you see what I'm saying here? So when the Lord says this, he's not saying your sin and false worship is going to make your children go to hell. He's saying your sin and false worship is going to confuse your children to the point that they don't know who I am or how to worship me. And so when we think about the second commandment in the context of how we are to worship the Lord, we should understand that this is a lot of pressure. 
This is a very difficult task. But here's one of the great blessings that we have in Christ. We no longer worship an invisible God. We no longer worship a voice coming out of a mountain. We worship Jesus, God made flesh. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Where once Moses was told that he could not look upon God and live, we now have seen his glory in Christ. As John says in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And because of that, we now fully know what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. Even when the second commandment was given to Israel, and the Lord gave strict guardrails around his worship, the Israelites didn't fully understand the God that they were worshiping. They still didn't know God fully. They didn't understand him as Trinity. They didn't understand fully how they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They didn't really understand all of that. But now we know the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We now have the most full revelation of God that we are going to get this side of heaven. We still know in part, but we know in a much bigger part than Israel knew at the mountain. We have understanding of redemption. We have understanding of grace. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God in its fullness given to us. And so for us to fully obey the second commandment, we must live according to the words that we find in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, here's the beautiful thing. Despite the fact that we continually fail to worship God the way that we should, Jesus Christ has perfectly worshipped the Father in our place. He has lived a life that perfectly obeyed all ten of the commandments. He has worshipped God only in the ways that God commanded and never in ways that God has not. And so in him, we find righteousness. It is given to us by the Lord. And that is a blessing. But despite the fact that we have his righteousness, we need to still strive to obey. Not because our obedience gets us into heaven, but because our obedience shows that we have the Spirit. Even though Christ has come 
and is the image of the invisible God, we should be wary of picturing him in our minds during worship. And that's a difficult thing because we're, I'm, a, I'm a very visual person. And it's tempting sometimes when I'm singing to Jesus to think of, of a picture of Jesus in my mind. And we need to be really careful not to do that. Whether that image comes from a painting, a movie, or a television show, or an invention of our own imaginations, they are not the true Jesus. They're not. Spoiler alert. Long-haired, blue-eyed Italian guy, not Jesus. Not Jesus. That dude on The Chosen, also not Jesus. Don't picture an image of Jesus when you worship him. Think of the things we know of Jesus. Think of his grace. Think of his mercy. Church, we must submit ourselves to the worship of the one true God in the ways that he has given us in his word. And we must shun the false worship that comes from our own wicked hearts. And we must trust fully in the perfect obedience of Christ who has accomplished this for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have told us in your word how we are to worship you. And Lord, I pray that we would worship you rightly, that we would not be drawn to worship you in ways that we have come up with or invented, Lord, but that we would look to your word and trust that that is sufficient for all things. Lord, I pray today for any who are here that do not have the righteousness of Christ given to them in salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that through the right worship of you that they have seen here today, that their picture of Jesus would be true and that they would worship him along with us. Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, I pray that it would bless us that it would unite us, that it would encourage us, that Christ would be glorified in our hearts. We pray this in his name. Amen.